I was thinking this week back to the time when my wife and I started dating. And I can remember I had just graduated high school, 18, and I got a job. My dad was like, you don't know what you want to do with your life. Get a job. Don't go to college yet. I got a job in a factory. And Kate and I were dating, and I, would, I just remember I would be at work on days that I would go see her. And she lived about an hour away from me. And I just would be distracted at work when I knew it was the day I was going to see her, because all I wanted to do was go see her. Didn't focus as much at work. I just was like, I want to see my, my, my girlfriend. And I was distracted. And then I remember growing up in upstate New York, there are times in the winter where the state will come out and say you should not travel because of a snowstorm. And I would be like, I don't care what the state says, I'm going to go see her. Remember times where I would be driving and it would be like you would just kind of drift and you couldn't see anything. You'd be, oh, there's a reflector and I'm going to turn this way. And it wasn't safe. Whenever I would get there, I would think, it's worth it. I got to see her. I got to be with her. I longed to be with her. I wanted to be with her. If I wasn't with her, I thought about her. When I was with her, everything was great. It was where I wanted to be. That picture is a very dim image of the desire of the Christian for our God. That is a very dim picture of our longing for and hoping for being near to God himself. And the reality is, for the Christian, at the moment of belief, we have him dwell in us. We have him. He's ours. There's also the reality that we don't have him fully. We, we are not yet in his presence with unhindered fellowship. And that is a promise, though, that we're given that we'll get in the new heavens and new earth, in eternity. And this whole life is a journey in which we're longing for that day. In a sense, like hoping to see Kate and being willing to go on a difficult journey and it all being worth it, that is, in a sense, what the Christian life is like. A difficult journey with a desire in our heart to be with God and the hope that one day we will have Him. And that's what we see in Psalm 84. Psalm 84 is written by the sons of Korah who are associated with the music of the temple. And they write this psalm for people who are traveling to Jerusalem. Three times a year, a Jew had to come to the temple. For three different feasts. And as they would travel, they would start with this longing to be in God's house. But the journey wasn't always easy. And we, we will find in the psalm a desire to be with God. We'll find in the psalm the, that the reality of the journey will be difficult. And then we find at the end that God is absolutely worth it. He's absolutely worth the journey. So, Psalm 84. <clears throat> to the choir master, according to the Gittin, some sort of musical instrument, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my God and my King. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. 
Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Bacah, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before, the, before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O, o God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield, and the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Our main point today will be simple, three words. Desire God supreme. Desire God supreme. And we'll see this in three points. In verses 1 through 4, a desire for God himself. Verses 1 through 4, a desire for God himself. Secondly, verses 5 through 7, the difficult journey. Desire for God, the difficult journey, verse 5 through 7. And lastly, We'll see the unrivaled God, verses 8 through 12. The unrivaled God. So with that said, verses 1 through 4, desire God himself. The psalmist begins, how lovely is your dwelling place. And we read the word lovely, and we, we read it and we think, how beautiful. How beautiful is the dwelling place of God. We read it and we think, Look at the beautiful gold and the beautiful tapestry. But the word lovely here literally means beloved. How beloved. It's something that we see as an, an object of supreme value. We have, we have children, they're beloved to us. You have family members that are beloved, they're dear, they're treasured, they're, they're precious to you. And the psalmist is, is not making a reference to the beauty of the temple but to the value of it in his heart. How beloved is the place that you live. How beloved in my heart is the place of God's presence. Verse 2, he longs for it. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. The idea here is, is of one who, who so strongly desires and, and has longings in their heart. They faint for it. They want it so bad, they're exhausted. My heart and my flesh sing for joy. If you have the NIV or the Christian Standard Bible, you'll, you'll read it differently. Rather than sing for joy, you'll read, my heart cries out. See, the idea is less of a song of joy and more of a song of desperation, a, a, a groaning. I want to be with you. I want to be in your presence. I want to be at your temple. But behind it is not just a desire to be in a physical building. Behind it is not a desire to just be in God's physical house. The desire is for God himself. 
my heart and flesh sing to the living God. It's not about the building. It's about the one in the building. The psalmist wants God. The psalmist longs for God. We read a couple weeks ago in Psalm 33. Israel sings the golden calf and God says, you're going to get the land. I'm going to give you the land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give you all the blessings of the land, but I'm not going. And Moses says, we don't want it without you. We don't want to be there if you're not there. Moses' heart was set on the God of the land, not on the blessings of the land. We find in Psalm 42, Sister Esther read this morning, another song of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for living water, so my soul pants for the blessings that you give me. No. For you, the living God. The psalmist's heart is one that yearns for God and longs for God and longs to be near God. This is what our heart should long for. This is what I want my heart to long for. And and I picked this psalm a couple weeks ago because it was one that I knew I wanted to examine myself. And I started this week Asking myself, how do I know if I want God or just the stuff that he gives? How do I know what's the difference between wanting the blesser over just the blessings? So I started asking myself questions. What do I talk about most? Talk about ministry? Talk about what's going on in the world? Do I talk about the God of the Bible? Where does my money go? Do I pray? Where does my mind go when it is just kind of quiet? None of us are going to do this perfectly. None of us are going to get this down. But is God our chief desire? Or is it other stuff? John Piper in his book, Desiring God, this has stuck with me for years. He says, God is the end of our desire, not the means to something greater. It's not like, if I got God, he's going to give me something good. God is the end of our pursuit. That's what we want. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. I want to be with you. The implication is before they set out on the journey to go to Jerusalem, they're starting out with hearts that yearn to be there. In verse 3, they give an example. Even the sparrow finds a home. The swallow, a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my God and my King. It's not so much that the sparrows and swallows have the desire that the psalmist had, but they're where the psalmist wants to be. The picture is that in this building there's birds that come and make their nest, and the psalmist is like, they're, where, they're living where I want to live. They're, they're near to the special presence of God in Israel, and that's where I want to be. I'm jealous of these birds, because they get to live in the temple. They get to build a nest near the altar. The psalmist wants to be there. The psalmist longs to be there. More than the stuff that God gives, the psalmist wants the God who gives it. 
It's not wrong to want other things. It's not wrong to long for marriage or children or a good job or good relationships, but they can't be cheap desires. They make wonderful blessings, but terrible gods. The God of the Bible is the chief pursuit. When I look in my life, I don't always have that. Where do we begin when we realize we don't have that? Is going to God and being honest and saying, I don't have that. Please give me that desire. Give me more of that desire for you. Increase and expand my view of who you really are. Because as I see you rightly, nothing can change. Verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. See? Those who get to dwell there never get bored of dwelling. It's not like they're like, we've lived here for a couple years and we, we're ready to move on to bigger and better things. They're ever singing God's praise. They don't get bored with God. It's not like, well, eternity's a long time and hopefully something pops up that keeps me excited. No, the psalmist is like, in God I find a, an unending fountain of reasons to be joyful. An unending ending well of delight and joy. And it engages his heart to sing praises forever. The psalmist starts verses 1 through 4 with desiring God himself. Verses 5 through 7, though, we're going to start out on the journey. where We're going to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Verses 5 through 7. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion? In, in whose heart you put this pilgrimage? In whose heart? They, they're not just going through the motions because they know they need to go down because the law commands them. They long to go. They, they want to make the trek, which is not like today where we just get in a car or a plane or a train. It's not an easy thing. You've got to walk. You've got to walk. And he says, they want to go. As they go through the valley of Baca, where Baca means weeping. As they go, the journey is not easy. As they go, the journey is difficult. As they go, the journey will have heartaches and pain. It's not a, an easy trek to go down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem. But he says, blessed are those as they go through the valley of Bacchus. As they go through the difficulties and pains. Just thinking through the scriptures how much trial there is on the journey of life. There's discouragements. Think of Elijah. Right after Mount Carmel, the contest with 400 prophets of Baal where God manifests his power. The next chapter, he's he's. He's crying out to God, let me die, because I'm alone. Jesus, persecuted for righteousness. Paul, persecuted for preaching the gospel. The, the, the Christian life is not a bed of roses. It's a, it's a difficult journey. I think even of, of missionaries. A missionary that I was into, introduced to, I've never heard of until a couple of years ago, was a lady by the name of Helen Rosevear. She was a single woman all for life. She went to Africa as a missionary. And the country that she was in in Africa was in the middle of a civil war, and she was taken captive 
and all kinds of unspeakable things were done to her. And she says, even in the middle of all these unspeakable things happening to her, she began to ask the question, is this worth it? And immediately said, wrong question. Is he worthy? And safe. She saw that the difficulty of life, they're not an end. They're, they're part of the journey towards a God that's worthy. And the psalmist here is saying, as we go on this journey, there is a God who's worth it. The destination is worth the pain. And then the rest of 6 and 7, quite honestly, is confusing. And I'm going to just tell you, I don't know exactly what the right interpretation of it is. Depending on what translation you have, it will say either that they make it a place of springs, as the valley of weeping, and pools. So that one view is that it is the, the pain and suffering and the tears shed that actually bless everywhere that these pilgrims grow. God, go. God uses the pain to bless everywhere they go. He, he uses the, the suffering of the journey to be a blessing all over the place. Or it could be the idea that as they go, God is supplying pools and streams to sustain them and provide for them. Much like on the trek to the promised land, God provides water out of a rock and bitter water is turned sweet. And the answer to which one it is is quite honestly, I don't know. But I do think the main idea, if we boil all the details down, is that God uses the difficult journey for our good and the good of others around us. He, he takes the pain and the, the suffering and can redeem it. This isn't just a, a verse to slap on things anytime suffering, but he really does make, turn all things for good. Even things that are not good in and of themselves, he uses and turns for good. So, the difficult journey is before them. But do you realize what we find at the end of verse 7? They arrive. They appear before God in Zion. We started out with a desire to be with God. We have a, a difficult journey that lays before the Israelites. We end verse 7. They appear before God. They get there. And what we find in verse 8 through 12 is that this God is un. Rival. There's no one like him. They get there, and in verse 8, they do what you do when you appear before God. They pray. And we start verse 8, and they, the psalmist asks the Lord to hear. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. How often do we read the psalms, and this is what we find in the psalms? Prayers like this, where it's not like, Lord, I don't know if I can ask this. No, the psalmists have very simple, childlike prayers. David will pray, bend your ear down to me. Incline your ear to me. He, listen to my cry. And the psalmist here is doing much of the same thing. Lord, as I cry out to you, as I pray, as I seek you, as I ask, please hear me. Your child is crying out, hear and notice what he prays for. Verse 9. Praise for the king. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face 
of your anointing. Some translations might say, on the face of your Messiah, the King. Israel knew as the King went, so the nation went. When Israel's kings were righteous and obeying the law, the land was usually a reflection of that. The nation was normally following God. When the king was introducing idolatry and other religions, the nation followed suit. The prayer here is, Lord, look upon the king and keep him. He's our shield. He's, he's, our, he's our defender. Look upon him. The implication is give him favor. Protect him. Keep him. Hold him. The king of Israel was only a picture, a temporary human waiting for the ultimate king. The ultimate king. We don't need to pray, Lord, would you keep him? He prays to keep us. He doesn't sin. He doesn't fail. And he keeps his people. And we get to this. This is these next few lines are the reason that I wanted to preach this for my own good. Verse ten: For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. The psalmists are are talking about this long trek, this difficult trek, and they get there. And the conclusion is, we get to be with God. In a day of this is better than a thousand, a long period anywhere else. Being with God in His presence is better than anything else. Put me wherever you want, the most beautiful place in the world, with, with all the people that I love. And the psalmist says, I'd rather be in His house for a day than spend generations anywhere else. This is kind of like what Paul says in Philippians 3, where he lists all of his own righteous deeds. I'm, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm uh, as, a, as far as zeal for the law, I'm a Pharisee. I got all these credentials. And he says, I count it all as loss that I may gain Christ. And being found in him, having a righteousness not of my own, but that which comes by faith in Christ. And then he says that he counts everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul's heart is, you can take everything. All the good stuff that I used to boast in. Just give me Christ. Just give me the person of Christ. He's better than all of it. And the psalmist is reflecting that same heart. A day with God is better than anything else. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. So somebody that it might not even be on the inside, but on the outside, but at least they're close, than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be, be on the outside but near the temple than be in the house of wickedness. See here the superiority of God to anything that the world promises. The promises of the world are for things that, that sound good, but they can't deliver. They promise joy. They promise self-exaltation. They promise pleasure. But they don't last. The sweetness of them quickly turns to bitter. Sweetness and the, the promise that we believe quickly turns into pain and heartache and disaster. What the Lord promises is to give us Himself. One who is eternal and unchanging in His love. Not loving, but His love. 
and will love us eternally and unchanging. One who is, is a fountain of delight. He is in and of himself blessed and is therefore the source eternally and unchangingly of our joy. He is eternally and unchangingly a father who cares, protects, and provides for. Where else would we go? Where, where else are we going to, just like Peter, where else are we going to go? The answer is we often go everywhere. The answer is I often go everywhere. Good news is, is he's there. He's, he's there. And we can go to him. Continues. Verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. A sun, a source of light, a source of warmth, a source of joy. He's a shield, he's a protector. Notice again, verse 11 and verse 9. The king is the shield and the Lord is the shield. Interesting. You get the New Testament that Jesus is both God and the human king. But he, he withholds nothing that is good from those who walk upright. He withholds nothing good. So that when we go through this life of trial and pain, suffering, we have a God who doesn't withhold good from us. He gives us himself. What more could he give us? He gave us his son. He gave us his son. He will withhold no good thing from us. If he gave us Christ, will he not also give us all things freely, generously, liberally? The Father gave the most treasured one in the entire universe. He gave his Son, willingly stepping into earth, taking on flesh, living a sinless life, and yet going to the cross to bear our guilt, our shame, to bear the penalty for all of our wrongdoing and law-breaking, dying in our place, rising from the grave, and offering forgiveness and mercy to any and all who will come, to all who would turn to him and believe. He withholds no good thing. All of us go through life with wants and desires that get unmet. We need to cling to this promise in those times when we're like, I want this, and why won't he give it? He withholds no good thing. He gave his son. He gives us himself. And he provides for us all of our needs. Not all of our wants, but all of our needs. We end verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is written, verse 12, from the perspective you just arrived. But looking back, the journey was difficult. Looking back from our Christian life, we don't know what the next day brings or what the next trial will be or the next heartache. So we trust the Lord. And looking back, the psalmist is like, it's all worth it. We get God. We dwell with Him. We have Him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. This theme, as we saw in the book of Exodus when we were in chapter 25 to 31, of dwelling with God is one of the main themes of Scripture. From the garden where God walks and talks with us, to the tabernacle where God will dwell in their midst, to Christ who comes and is the presence of God incarnate on earth, to dwelling in us in the church, 
But ultimately, in the new heaven, the new earth, we get a God who will have no hindrance from our sin, no break in our fellowship, and this will become a reality for us. You can know God and have God and experience the joy of His presence today, but our hope, the journey we're on and looking forward to, is a day where we will know no end to His delightful presence. There will be no distance from his presence. There will be nothing but what we found in verse 4. Praising him for being able to dwell near him. So as we close, I encourage you, as I seek to encourage myself, that God himself should be our supreme. Father, we come and we confess our need for you. We confess that often our hearts do not seek after you alone. And we ask that you would change that. We ask that you would help us be captivated by a vision, a view of you that is supreme. And that you would be our chief visitor. <coughs> Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.